And so we go, we, we walk further and further and further into unrighteousness and into sin. And this is what Paul kind of shows us here. This big, long um, quote that he makes that he sort of mashes up from a bunch of different places. This is what he does. He shows us this is one step and, and it continues on. And so we're going to start this morning in verse 9. And Paul asks a question. So last week we looked at, he says, well, look, what advantage do the Jews have? And then he says they have every advantage because they have the oracles of God, right? So they have every advantage, and he gives that argument, and then now he kind of returns back to this idea. And so he says, okay, so if they have every advantage because they have God's law, then he asks a different question. What then are the Jews better off? So they have an advantage, but when it comes to righteousness... They have God's word, but are they better off? Are they more righteous because they have God's word? They knew his law. They knew his plan for salvation. They knew God's hope for the world. They knew the consequence of sin even. And yet, they were no better off. They knew everything. They had, I mean, the Pharisees were like masters of memorization and following the law at least on the outward, down to the T, right? They would count their steps. But inwardly, they were no better off. See, just knowing God's law is not enough, right? And we all know that. We've heard that a million times in our life. It gives us an advantage to know God's law because we know what we should be doing. But in the end, we are no more righteous because we know it. We are no better off. The Jews and the Greeks are are under sin together. Right? There's no differentiation. Both of them, the Jews and everybody who doesn't know God's law, who doesn't have that advantage, they are still just as bad off. They are still just as unrighteous. Now, if we read too quickly past that statement, right, that they are under sin, we miss something I think that's really important. To be under something is to be subject to it. We use this terminology um, quite often. To be under something, we are subject to it. And in many cases, that means we are completely under its control. Right? What do you say whenever you have something under control? So our friends here, right, um, we've known them for a long time. They're trying to build a house, right? And so there's all of these things that come in and there's all these permits in the county. And whenever I ask them, they never said, oh, yeah, we're on top of it. Right? It's on top of them, right? Building a house is hard work and it's hard to do. When we say, oh, yeah, I'm on top of it, that means... You have it under control. You understand everything that's going on. You've got it. It's under your control. But when you are under something else, it has control over you. And this is what Paul tells us here, right? That we are under sin. You think about all of the different ways that this plays out. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not hard to, it's, it's not hard to understand this, right? We go to work and we have a boss and we are under them and we do whatever we, 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 we do whatever they tell us regardless of whether we want to do it or not. And it's not like you can just, for six hours you do it and then for the last two hours you ah, I'm going to do whatever I want. No, when you're under the authority of somebody, you do whatever they say for however long that period is. The problem is, is that with sin, we are under sin 24-7. It is ruling and controlling us. We are subject to its influences all of the time. 
So we have God's word as an advantage to us, and yet we are still completely broken by our sin. We know what God requires, but we can't do it. We're not on top of it. We are under it, right? We are under our sin. And so Paul makes this very definitive statement. Now, he knows that when he says that, especially the Jews are going to be like, what are you talking about? I'm doing all the right things. What are you? And so he doesn't make a statement and then just stand on that alone. But what, how does he prove his statement? Ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, this is what we should do every time we make a definitive statement, right? He says it, and then he says, let me show you why this is true from the Bible, right? He goes back to the scriptures, and then he gives us this really long quote, which is not just from one place. He grabs a little piece from here, and he grabs, and he kind of makes a statement here, all from the Old Testament scriptures, and he gives us this progression. Let's read this all together, and then we'll go back and look at it a little bit at a time. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So when he says that we are all under our sin, he says, look, this is not new information for you, right? If, he, if he's speaking to the Jewish people, they should know that. They shouldn't be walking around boasting in their own righteousness, because this is all part of the scriptures that they have known and read for years and years and years. So he says, no one is righteous. I challenge you to think about the best thing that you have ever done. The most noble, the most courageous, whatever, however you want to define good, the most heroic thing. Take a second and then realize, right, that it is not enough. Tally all of your attendance at church and all of your prayers and all of the hours or however, however long you have spent reading your Bible or thinking about God or praying. And none of that is enough because none of us are righteous. Gandhi didn't do enough. Mother Teresa didn't do enough under their own steam to ever be labeled righteous. Nothing you or I have ever done has made us righteous. Nobody is righteous except for God himself. So Christ is the only exemption, right? Because he is God in the flesh. So nobody is righteous other than God. And this lack of being righteous then leads us to a lack of understanding. It goes back to the idea that we are under sin, that every part of us has been corrupted by our sin, by our fleshly nature and desire to do what we want to do instead of doing what God wants to do, to the point where it twists even our ability to understand things. We saw last week, right, that the understanding of man in his sin is so twisted that we are willing to call God unrighteous because he is willing to punish us for our sins, right? That's what Paul says in the first part of chapter 3. 
He said we as humans in our twisted and broken understanding would be willing to call God unrighteous for punishing us. Because when we sin, good comes from it, right? God's goodness is shown. Therefore, why, is he, why would he punish us? That's unrighteous. I mean, how broken is our brain that we would be willing to do that? We don't understand. We don't get it. I would say this too. There's a temptation amongst Christians, even after God has opened our mind, to willingly walk in misunderstanding. How many times have you heard this? Or how many? T- I mean, I've said this myself many times in my life. This idea, well, that, that thing, that theological discussion, whatever, that argument, nah, not really interested in that. I'm just going to love God and I'm going to love people and that's enough for me. Like, if that's all God wanted us to know, our Bibles would be way thinner than it is, right? That takes about a paragraph, maybe. Like, he could have explained that really quickly. There's a lot in there. And a lot of the times we're tempted to willingly just continue only consuming the milk, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to understand salvation. I'm going to, you know, I know about the Trinity, even though I can't really figure that one out. But like, I I understand the basics and that's enough for me. And I'm not going to go beyond that. I don't really care to understand more than that. I don't think that that's what God intended. He revealed all of that to us so that we can try and understand. So we're not righteous. We have a lack of understanding. And there's an, this one is the one that was most troubling for me this week because it, no one seeks God. Now, how many of you know a non-Christian who it seems like they are seeking God? They're trying to be kind. They're trying to be loving. They're trying to be forgiving. They're even trying to find truth. They may not even buy into all of the crazy nonsense that our society has put out. And they say, I am looking for what is good and for what is true. One of my patients who was on hospice, she, she says this to me. I've been seeking God my whole life and I've never really found him. I've read all of these things. And I just, it, it, it's hard because right here, like I believe this before I believe what somebody tells me, right? So this says that nobody is seeking God. So how do we understand that statement in a world where we do meet people who seem to be trying to find God. And so I looked and I looked and I thought about this and I found a quote from Thomas Aquinas and I think this is probably the best explanation I've ever heard when it comes to this. Listen, listen he's old, right? He, he writes kind of eloquently. So we've got to listen. Uh, people are seeking purpose, happiness, relief from guilt. And when we see people searching for the things that can be found only in Christ... And we assume that because they are seeking the benefits of being in a relationship with God, that they are seeking God. That is the very dilemma of the fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we do not want God. In other words, what he is saying is we see people, they're looking for the benefits. They're looking for all of the things that we get whenever we have a relationship with God. The, the peace, the forgiveness, right? The love for humanity, all of those things, truth, and yet they're not actually looking for God. And we get confused by that. We look at it and we say, that person seems to be seeking the Lord, but really what they're seeking is all of the good things that come from God, and they don't want God himself. This reminds me of the prodigal son, right? We, when, we, when we hear that parable, we often think of the younger son, he gets the inheritance, he runs off, he does all the crazy stuff, he comes back. It's not the end of the story, right? It's not even the most important part of that story. The most important part of that story is the older brother 
who comes after that, right? The party is thrown and everything is happening. And the older brother is, what is he doing? He's out in the field and he's angry. Because his father was willing to bring the younger son back into his fellowship and give him things. And the younger son says, you never thrown me a party. You never, you never f- slaughtered the fattened calf for me or the goat. You didn't do those things for me. And what we see when we read that story is actually the older brother doesn't want his father. He just wants what his father has. That's what the world is doing. They want all of the benefits of being in relationship with God and with Christ, and they don't actually want Him. Why? Because God requires things of us. He requires that we admit that we are sinners. He requires that we repent of our sins. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We just want the love and acceptance and forgiveness that God offers without the repentance, without the hard things that go along with it. And so I believe that it's true, right, that nobody seeks God. I think it's also really important to realize that this statement gives us further evidence that God is electing some for salvation. If nobody is seeking God, how is anybody then finding him? How is anybody, if, you, if, if, you're, if your understanding of salvation is that people are choosing to accept God, how are they finding him? If they're not seeking him, if they're not understanding anything about God, how is it that they are coming into salvation unless God is doing it? Unless God is finding the person out lost in the desert? Unless God is the one who is giving them understanding? I know, I've, I've met a lot of people here, and we've had this discussion, and it's a wonderful discussion, right? I'm not trying to belittle, and I'm not trying, but what I am telling you is if, if that's your understanding of salvation, that we choose God and we make that choice, I just challenge you to think about how does that fit with this idea, right? That, that we are not seeking God, that we don't understand Him, that we are basically dead in our sins, as Ephesians talked about, right? I have office hours. Nobody comes to talk to me. Come talk to me about it, right? You wanna, let, we can hash this out. I would love to sit down and be able to chat with you about it. But if nothing else, I just, I'm just challenging you to think about that in, in accordance with these verses, right? How, how is it that somebody is saved if they're not able to seek God, if they're not able to understand God, unless God is doing that work in them? So because of all this, right, because we are not righteous, because we lack understanding, because we are not seeking after the Lord... We are not doing good. Nobody is. Now, that's another one to heart that's kind of hard because we look around at people who are not Christians and they do nice things. They're not selfish. Right? We, we hear about all the time where you, we, police officers or firemen rush into buildings or they put their, their life on the line to save other people and we think... What do, you, what do you mean? Because that person's not a Christian? The man who put his life on the line to run into a flaming building, save another person, you're telling me that's not a good deed. And it's not. Because it doesn't meet the standard that the Bible lays out for us for something that is good. If the person is just doing an outward deed and they're not trying to bring glory to God, if they're not, as we know from Jesus quoting Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. If they're not doing that deed with that in mind, then it's not a good deed. See, it's easy to piece this together, right? It's not just about the outside or the outward 
to love the Lord your God, Jesus says, look, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? That's part of it. So we're doing the outward obedience, and that's part of doing a good deed. But the inward has to follow suit. You have to be doing it with the right attitude. You have to be doing it so that you would bring glory to God and not bring glory to yourself. And here's the truth, is that none of us have ever done it. Even on your best day, even when you're the most in tune with the Holy Spirit and you do something good or you, you do something that God has commanded you to do and you're bringing praise and you're bringing honor and glory to God, there's still some selfishness going on every time. You see, it doesn't say... Love the Lord your God with part of your heart, and with part of your soul, or with part of your mind, or with part of your strength, but all of it. None of us have ever been able to accomplish that in anything we've ever done. Maybe 90%, I don't know. I mean, on your best day and the best deed, there's still a little bit going on. There's still a little bit of selfishness. There's still a little bit of like, ah, I hope, really, I hope somebody sees this so that they'll know that I love Jesus. So, I don't know, right? I don't, I don't know what it is, but we all suffer from it. In everything that we do. None of us have done good. At least not wholly and perfectly. Now Paul kind of shifts. So he's, look, he's talking about the inward man, right? We're not righteous. We don't understand. We're not doing good because there's selfishness. We're not seeking after the Lord. And now he moves to the outward. So because your internal self is broken... Now, the things that you say are also broken. The way that you talk to people is also broken. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, they're all deadly weapons. And they can destroy people. If we are not careful about the words that we speak, we will ruin somebody's, not just their day, but we could ruin years of their life. If we are not careful about the things that we say. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't mince words here, right? Your throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lip. This is the most poisonous snake on the planet. That's, that's the one he chooses to use. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You see, what we say to one another has the power to build up or to destroy. It's a lesson we teach our children from the earliest age. Even before my children, I mean, you know, my, my youngest one has not made any kind of profession of faith at three years old. And already we're teaching him, don't say that. That's not okay to speak those words to your sister or to your brother. I'm not going to wait until he becomes a Christian. Like, okay, now I'll tell you. Because we recognize how, de how devastating words can be. Good and bad things can stick with people for decades. Now, thankfully, as a follower of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, right? And if we allow him, he will guide our tongue. He will guide our speech. But if you ever forget the power that your words carry... It's a dangerous place to be. It's like, it's something like 80% of men have a scar on their opposite hand, right? It's right-handed, left-handed, on your index finger. I Look, I have it on both because I've tried to use a knife in both hands, right? Because when I was a kid, my dad told me, right, that the, a knife is sharp, it's got a lot of power, it can do damage. And I'm like, oh, when I'm a kid, I'm like, okay, whew, 
and I'm really, really careful. And then as I grow older and I get more comfortable, and then I stop caring and I stop being careful, and then all of a sudden, blood's gushing everywhere, scars on my hands, right? When we, when we forget how dangerous a knife can be, that's usually when we cut ourselves, right? When we forget how dangerous and how powerful our words can be, this is when we let our tongue go loose. This is when we say things we know that we shouldn't say. I'm sure all of us can think of something, probably good and bad, from decades ago, right, that has stuck with you for long, long periods of time. So then Paul progresses again. So he says, look, your inner man is broken. The words that you say are broken. And now the way that you treat people, the things that you do are broken. 15 to 18, the violence that he talks about here. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, we read 15 to 18, and oh, that's like barbarians, right? It's big, hulking people who like, can hardly even speak, and they're running around smashing people with hammers. And we don't, when we read things like that, we don't, oh, that does, that, we don't think about it applying to us in our world, in our society. We rarely read the Bible and we read things like this that are really strong. We say, yep, that's, that's me. That's us. That's what we do. It's interesting because the world as a whole, I think, has denied that this is who we are and that this is what we do when we don't have God in our lives. The Enlightenment, right, the 18th, 19th century, it made people believe that we were so civilized that coming in to the 20th century most people at the time believed there would never be another war ever again we're, we're beyond that we've progressed beyond violence in war and the 20th century is the most violent 100 years in all of human history without question World War I, 20 million people. World War II, 85 million people. Stalin, 32 and a half million people. Mao, upwards of 80 million people that he killed. And let's not forget that since the legalization of abortion, right, 63 and a half million children have been murdered in the womb. People look around and say, ah, we're not, that's not us. Our feet are not swiftly shedding blood. Look at all the technology and all the medical advancements that we have made. And look at how much peace we're bringing to the world. And this is just the big ones, right? This is just the big stuff that we know about. There's, I mean, there's many, many other wars, right? Vietnam, there's like almost a million people who were killed. There's, there are people dying all of the time because people's feet are swift to shed the blood of their fellow man. Why? Because their inside is broken. There's no righteousness going on. We also live in that last, that last phrase, right? There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. We live in a society, we live in a world that denies God more fervently than, I, than I'm aware of in, in, in human history. The number of cults that have popped up in the last 150 years since the Enlightenment, when we're supposed to have be, thought ourselves out of violence and out of ridiculousness, and yet this is when all of these crazy cults have popped up. 
the flat-out rejection of God has never been higher. The three most evil men, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, all of them deny God flat-out. Atheists, right? This is what it... I mean, why would, you, why would you care? Why would you think that human life has any inherent value if we don't believe that God created us in his image? And this is some cosmic accident, and we're just a bag of cells that got here by accident. Who cares, then? Who cares if people die? That's the attitude. That's what happens. That's what comes out of a denial of God, of having no fear of God before you. We just say, well, it doesn't matter. These things don't mean anything to me. And what is really terrifying, and this is, this is what for us as a church is, I think, the hardest thing. You see, we talk about wanting to evangelize, and that's a great and glorious thing, and that's what we should be doing. But we live in a world that looks at the Christian and says, you're the fool. You're the one. We're the ones who don't have understanding. We're believing in some book that was written 2,000 years ago. You guys are out of date and out of touch and you don't understand anything. When in reality, the world in its wisdom is the one who doesn't understand. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. We have the truth and we're not just walking into a world that misunderstands God. We're walking into a world and we're trying to evangelize people who think we are the fool because we believe in Jesus Christ. That is hard, hard work. Those people that you work with, your neighbors, whoever it is in your life that God is calling you to evangelize and tell them about Jesus, they think you're stupid. They think you are a fool because you believe it. The world is broken. It is upside down. It is completely backwards. But the gospel is more powerful than all of that. God's arm is not too short to save. He can save anybody and everybody. And so we go out and we share the gospel no matter what insults are hurled at us. No matter how stupid people might think we are or what kind of foolishness they think we have. We know that we have the truth and so we have to continue. We endure that. We can endure being called a fool and being thought that we are dumb or that we're outdated thinking about the sacrifice that Christ has made. He gave up far more than anything we could ever give up. Just let it roll off your back. Somebody calls you a fool, I don't care. Jesus loves you, and I'm going to keep talking about it until you walk away from me, or whatever the case may be, right? The last thing then that we see, so at the beginning we saw that everyone is under sin, but then Paul tells us in these last two verses, we are also that everyone is under the law. These two forces are weighing down on us. We are controlled by these two things. And when we compare our sin to the law, we see that without question, we are guilty. And that our guilt means that we deserve to go to hell for all eternity. There's nothing we can do to fix it. There's nothing we can say, right? Verse 19 says, our mouths will be stopped. It's not as if you can stand before God one day and he presents your list of sins and you're like, let me explain to you why I did those things. Oh, and then God, be, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that. Dang, I'm really sorry. Let me just start crossing some of these off, right? Our mouths will be stopped. There is nothing you can say. There is nothing any of us can say the best defense lawyer in the world, right? Johnny Cochran could not get us off for the things that we have done. Nobody can stand before the Lord 
and speak and convince him that we are good people, that we are righteous, that we have done good. We will be standing before the Lord and we will be silenced by our sin. And what's more is that no one can claim ignorance. No one can say, oh God, I didn't know. Paul already gave us that argument. Everybody knows who God is. There's no excuse because of the things that we see in nature, right? He makes this argument and he's coming to the end of sort of the, the hammer laying down on people for all of their sin, right? He has been hitting us with this over and over and over again in Romans 3. And he's saying, look, this is the reality. You are sinful. You are unrighteous. You have never done anything good. And the law is bearing down on you. What in the world are you going to do about it? Well, we're not quite there yet in the text. But we're not going to leave it there, right? We know what we can do. Paul hasn't gotten, gotten us there just yet. But we know that what we have in that moment when we can't speak in defense for ourselves or our only sin, all we can do is cry on the name of Jesus. You see, when God the Father looks at you and he lists off your sins and you stand there broken and you can't speak, what's going to happen? Are you going to have to try and... There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. But if you have faith in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and begged Him for forgiveness, in that moment, Jesus Christ stands between you and the Father and He says, that one is mine. And the Father says, righteous. You are good. You see, those last verses, they read a lot differently when we are believing in the name of Jesus. We have been made righteous. We have been given understanding. We are finally seeking after God. We are following His path. We have infinite worth to Him. We have the ability to, to do good works. We speak the truth. 